right folks, it took us 46 episodes to do something BT Sport would have done in one. Welcome to Bike Life. Let's go! Yes, for the purposes of this week on Bike Life, welcome to episode VR46 uh, of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101. As the uh, MotoGP season is still a month away and World Superbikes is still a week away, we decided we'd dedicate episode 46 to the one and only Valentino Rossi in the week of his 39th birthday. It's almost like we planned it. We really didn't. Um, but Joy, welcome along to this very special edition of this show as we look back on the incredible 20-plus year career of Valentino Rossi and in many ways, in a similar fashion to the Marc Marquez special of a few weeks ago, we'll look at basically what makes the man tick from his on-track and off-track characteristics that have made him the man and the legend that he is in this sport. A rider that in a very rare occurrence and a, a man in any sport to transcend his sport you know you're talking about someone very, very special, and that's what we're talking about uh, with Valentino Rossi. Uh, we're going to talk all about him over the course of the next uh, hour and a half here on episode 46 uh, of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101. Uh, joining me to do so, um, and he's on brand this week because he has got one of uh, Valentino Rossi's branded energy drinks, especially for this edition. It's Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. Hey, guys. How's it going? <laughs> yeah, the, he's put the Snapple on hold for a week. Yeah, I'm doing you guys all a solo. Like, listen, the only reason I'm here for this, right, is that is that my choice was either we do one on Valentino Rossi or we do one on Casey Stoner, which we're doing about 14 minutes long. Yeah. He's really good at riding bikes and he's a boring git. Yeah. Um, so I had to settle for this one. So if I'm going to do this, I need an IV drip of Valentino Rossi flavored monster. Yeah. So here we are. Yeah, we were, we were going to consider just trolling all of the Rossi fans and doing a special on Jorge Lorenzo, but we've 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 had enough bad bad sort of comments from the Grid Girls uh, episode that we thought we'd give that one a miss um, for this week. Um, we've had enough vitriol sent our way um, in recent weeks. So uh, yes, Valentino Rossi <laughs> is the subject of discussion uh, for this week's episode of Back Air from Motorsport 101. But we should mark your card now um, before we proceed um, with this episode and future episodes that we are now, from this point onwards, weekly once again um, on hey! Bike Live. So we will be back around this time next week. Well, actually, later this week um, because the uh, forthcoming episode, episode 47, is our big bumper World Superbike season preview. Um, which will be going online around about Friday night. We're going to be recording it on Friday, all things um, being equal, and we, were going to, we are going to send that straight up. So um, early access backers and um, just you regular folk, you will all get that instantly um, just to ensure that that goes live for the start of the new season, which is in the early hours of Saturday morning. So um, if you're going to be hey. staying up um, to watch the opening World Superbike Super Pole and race of the season... Uh, and you're struggling to um, make it through the night on Friday night, you will have a Bike Live World Superbike season preview to help you through it. So um, we look forward to bringing you that towards the end of this week. Um, before we move on then, the places you can find us, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore 101. Um, our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Our website is motorsport 101 Dot net. Uh, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially and earn yourself early access to this and to Motorsport 101, um, which will return as well this week, um, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Um, right then, let's talk about the Doctor and this incredible odyssey um, of Valentino Rossi, this incredible career that he's had, which started um, way back in 1996. The numbers that go with the career of Valentino Rossi um, almost seem mind-boggling, even when you look at them now. 
um, the career that Valentino Rossi's had. Um, this year, um, he will embark on his 23rd, his 23rd season as a Grand Prix rider. And uh, in only two of those 22 prior, has he not won a Grand Prix during that season? Those were the two years at Ducati. He has won a Grand Prix in every other season prior to that. Um, with the exception of his first season in uh, 125s, he has never been lower than seventh in the World Championship. If you discount those two years at Ducati since uh, 1997, he has never been lower than fifth in the World Championship, fifth being his lowest, which came last year. Um, Dre, it's an extraordinary level of consistency and longevity um, that Valentino Rossi has achieved. And we're going to come on to the uh, ins and outs of what makes him what he is um, over the course of the next hour and a half. But just when you purely just look at it in purely numbers terms, surely there is no equal. Well, yeah, I mean, the only, I think, significant record he's got left that he hasn't touched, I think, is Agostini's all-time wins record, um, really. I mean, championships, there's some debate about that one. But um, when it comes to sheer number of race wins, that's about as much as the only real milestone he's got left to tick that he, can re- that he realistically can. Um, it's, it's, it's outrageous. It is... He's in triple digits for almost every significant stat uh, besides pole positions. And he's never been the strongest qualifier to begin with anyway. So, I mean, this, no matter which way you slice it, it's incredible. He Like, no one in, in biking history really has had his level of success. But also just the longevity that he is still the rider that he is 20 years on from starting in the top class. It is absolutely insane that... Like I said, he turned 39 this you know this this past Thursday, and he still is every bit as dangerous and every bit as a title threat as he was when he first got to the top flight in the first place. It's it's unbelievable, just the level of consistency, um, just you know the level of relevance he has, he has kept in the sport for this long, and nobody has made any suggestion that um, that he may have to retire for at least three years. Most of them by me. Yeah. So, <laughs> and he's every bit as driven as well as he was um, back in 1996. And and without trying to, because I don't want to try and talk down anyone else's achievements here. Um, but in terms of Giacomo Agostini, Giacomo Agostini's career spanned in the in Grand Prix motorcycle racing 14 years. Um, 15 right. seasons and of course this was a time when riders would run across num- a number of classes Agostini would run in both 350cc class and the 500 class and won multiple world championships in fact in a, in a number of years he won both world championship classes in that season including in 1968 um, from 68 to 1970 Agostini was unbeaten he won every race he started um, in right. both classes he started in um, back in those two years and of course that's just something that you just could not do nowadays in you, you would not see a rider riding Moto2 and MotoGP um, in the same season. It just would not happen in the same weekend. It's just unheard of. And um, there, that is where a lot of Agostini's just incredible numbers come from. Um, but Valentino Rossi's career has spanned um, incredibly three decades now. Um, it's, it's an incredible record. And some of the records he holds, um, just not just in terms of the MotoGP class, all-time wins record. He's won 89 Premier Class races, more than anyone else in history. Um, mm. But he's also started 361 Grand Prix in all classes, a record. 5,835 points in his career, a record. 226 podium finishes in 361 starts. That's an incredible strike rate um, in 261 yeah. races to be on the podium in essentially two-thirds of them. 
um, is incredible. And the longest winning career, which in many ways is the most incredible stat of them all, the record that he set at Aston last year. His first win and his last win were 20 years of 311 days apart, um, which is quite extraordinary that he is still as good as anyone in his field um, that later on. And in terms of trying to explain, Drake, what has made him so special and what makes him such a popular figure around the world, in many ways, it's not so much Valentino Rossi the rider, um, because I think we probably agree. If you, if you put him next to Mark Marquez or to a Casey Stoner, for instance, he's, he's not necessarily the most electrifying rider to watch. For example, on a qualifying lap, you wouldn't watch Valentino Rossi on a qualifying lap and necessarily be blown away in the same way you would be my Mark Marquez. It's, it's the character, it's the showman of Valentino Rossi that has connected with so many fans and enabled him to transcend his own sport. Yeah, I never looked at it in the way in the way like that until you brought it up. But when thinking about it, you're absolutely right. Like you don't watch like Val like Valentino Rossi necessarily for entertainment value on the track. It's I think it's more of a case of off the track, the Rossi character, you know, the 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 showman, that the, the entertainer that Valentino Rossi is more off the track that I think is what's endeared him to so many fans through two generations of bike riding really um it's it's that anticipation of when he wins it's it's the fact that hey even if you know you get to a point where you know it's been a while since his last win you still cherish the little ones when he does win that much more because you don't know when the last one's gonna happen you don't know what he's got prepared like he hasn't even won races in home tracks like Mugello and Misano in recent times, and he he still gets stand innovations and podium showcases just because he's Valentino Rossi. Yeah, and, I, and I've been but, watching motorcycle racing for nearly twenty years, and I I can't remember a celebration like the the one we saw at Misano in twenty fourteen when Valentino right. Rossi won his first Grand Prix of that season, only his second race since his golden years of, of Yamaha and his first spell. I've, you know that was his first win for over twelve months. And yet the celebration yeah. was as if he'd won the world title. I still remember. I, I, I don't. I, I, I'm plugging this for the second special on a row, but hitting the apex when he gets that first win of the comeback in Assen in twenty in twenty it was twenty thirteen, and I, I remembered like his how crazy his hometown was, and I know he's always been a bit of an Assen specialist, and you know that is like the mecca of bike racing now on the MotoGP calendar. And like my brother burst into tears when 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 he won that race, being me and the Rossi nut that he was, and just just the just the pandemonium that, that followed when Rossi won that race, which I think was his first Grand Prix win in a good three years. Um, that was that was incredible. That was that was very very special. Um, like it's now, I think he's gotten to that point now where it's like we just we've just come to appreciate what he adds to the sport, even if it's not necessarily him being a title contender or him winning races, his presence alone um, adds to, to a spectacle and adds to a Grand Prix weekend. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's the showman element of him that makes him the star that he is, I think, even more so than his, his astonishing ability on a bike. <laughs> it is. And, yeah, Valentino Rossi holds the record. You mentioned Assen as a specialist there. He holds the record in MotoGP for the most wins at Assen. Eight MotoGP-class wins um, at Assen. Uh, and the most recent of those coming last year. Um, it's one of three MotoGP circuits he holds the record at for the most wins uh, in the class, Bruno and Shanghai being the others. Um, but in all classes in Grand Prix, he holds the record for the most wins in Catalonia, 10, uh, Estoril, 5, 
Um, although arguably his most famous race, Estoril, is the one he didn't win. Um, he holds the record for the most wins at Phillip Island. He's won there eight times in all classes. Um, the most wins at Worldcom in South Africa, although that's a circuit that hasn't been visited as often. Most wins at Hareth as well. The most recent of those was two years ago. He's won there nine times. He's won at Sepang six times. He's won at Donington seven times. Uh, and Rio in Brazil six times. Uh, before this, the, that circuit dropped off the calendar. There hasn't been a Brazilian Grand Prix in MotoGP uh, ever since. Um, but yeah, he, he was probably the first guy I can remember, Dre, that invent, almost invented the, the, almost the Hollywood celebration in MotoGP. Oh, Some, God, yeah. Something that is almost seen as, as common now. Like we, we look at Mar- Marquez, for instance, and his big six celebration, the roll of the dice after he won the title, or Jorge Lorenzo after winning that 2015 title where he had the, the four looky like Lorenzo's in uh, in matching le- leathers and crash helmet from his, his other titles. Yeah, so including the fat short one. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was quite funny. Um, but but Valentino Rossi, Rossi was almost one of the first riders to bring that to the sport, which again helped him connect. I mean, I think of some of the famous ones, like the, the time he famously jumped off his bike and walked into a nearby portable toilet, <laughs> which oh, yeah, is the hilarious. Oh yeah, was titled up the nine, yeah. And, and the, the celebration, I believe it was after his 100th win in all classes at Assen. Where they had the banner situated side of the side of the track, which spanned almost an entire back straight, as they unheld yes. the banner and it had an image of all of his Grand Prix victories. Um, I mean, he's a rider that acknowledges his place in history and acknowledges the history that he's a part of in the sport. Um, mm. And as I mentioned, it's those celebrations that endear him and just and allow him to connect with so many spectators around the world and endears him to them. Yeah, I grew up as a Sage Jimenez fan, and I still, like, nothing stokes the fires of me getting roasted by my family of Rossi supporters more than the, than the sweep celebration. Yes. That that was, oh, I, I was sitting on the couch just disgusted <laughs> as he broke the broom out, like, in reference to the fact that, you know, Rossi had been penalised for, you know, his, his crew sweeping his side of the grid before the race started. Um, so, of course, around later when that came out, I was just going, just going, <laughs> but, um, like, it, it, like somebody's, somebody celebrated on the bloody, you mentioned the Porto, I mentioned Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, yeah. when, uh, when he won title number seven, um, just, I, like, the Rossi fan club is a ridiculous, ridiculous thing, um, but as you say, like, I don't think there's been a more entertaining character in the history of motorsport than Valentino when it came to basically bringing out the big Hollywood showpiece celebration whenever a, a significant Grand Prix rolled around that he found a way to win. He, he's a genius for that. And I think that's why he's probably the most captivating guy I've ever seen in motorsport for that reason alone is that he was box office. He was Hollywood. You would tune in to see what he would do next when he won a Grand Prix. Like that is something you can't really buy um, in, in motorsport in general. I mean, Formula One, you would never get that. Not in a bajillion years. The closest we got to that was, was, was Seb in 2013 when he jumped out of the car on the start-finish mm. straight and started bowing in front of it, which you can make your own jokes about how good that Red Bull was. But, uh, but, but you know, we, we don't get that in other forms of motorsport, not on the same degree as that. And, you know, the fact that we're all so beautifully choreographed and, you know, they were special. They're made for great television moments. I still remember how much of that was featured in Eurosports leaving montage in 2012 when they when they passed the rights on of MotoGP to BT in the first place and it's like Rossi is in a good half of that montage it is it is ridiculous and um, you know he's he was such an important part of, of, of putting MotoGP on the map often through those celebrations and some of the special crash helmets that he's he's adorned over the years as well particularly at his home Grand yes. Prix um, that I mean Valentino Rossi's 
almost earned a reputation in recent years as a guy who's um, created almost a siege mentality around himself. Um, and you know, if you're either with him or against him. Um, but there were times when he was almost as keen to laugh at himself as anyone. I mean, the, the donkey crash helmet um, that he wore two, oh, yes. two weeks after embarrassingly crashing out of an almost certain win in Indianapolis. Um, so he went to his home ground here at Mazzano two weeks later and after calling himself a donkey, wore the Shrek donkey uh, design on his crash helmet. Um, yes. The famous one where he has his own face, that famous one of his own face with his mouth wide yeah. open on top of his crash helmet. He looks like steve Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he does. He looks like Steve-O. Just, just the incredible uh, designs they had then. And we're going to talk about his mind games later on as well. But he'd even use his crash helmets to create a bit of mind games as well. Because who can forget the in the heart of that 2015 title battle, the little fish and the shark um, that oh, yes. were designed to represent him and Lorenzo midway through 2015. Oh yeah, brilliant, brilliant. I've seen like the pasta designs, like that. Like, I, remember, I remember the one where he had a he had a pasta based crash helmet. Like like Valentino had his own brand of pasta, and some of the text, if you translated it, to was basically saying like "Don't overboil," which was referencing detractors in the Italian media saying he should have retired yeah. around 2010, and, and that was a, a blatant reference back at that. So he's very much self aware, Valentino, you know, and. Like that's that's the beauty of him as a rider is that he like I said he is a complete showman he's not and like many like great comedians and great people that are characters they have no problem taking the piss out of themselves and that like there is a level of genius that comes with that alone and yeah it's it's you, you can't help but laugh at some of it because it is, it is totally ridiculous but it, that's 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 the sort of person Valentino is and that's what can often make it so great he is and in terms of. What's made him so popular off track, we've certainly um, pointed our fingers at it. In terms of what's made him so great on track um, and what's allowed him to win those nine world titles and over 100 Grand Prix victories in his career, um, I think it comes down, certainly in my view, Dre, to Rossi the tactician. Um, Because, again, when you measure him against some of the other greats um, of Grand Prix and many of the greats he's raced against, you could certainly... I don't think you could argue necessarily that Rossi was the fastest rider we ever saw. Um, but you could probably argue he was the smartest. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, in terms of just pure unbridled speed, I think Marquez, Lorenzo and Stoner had half a shade in him on that on that department. Like, some of the stories you'll hear about Stoner, in fact, he would set some of his fastest sectors on outlaps. Kind of said it all about how ridiculous the man was. But... You're right. There was a level of tactical nous that that came with Valentino that nobody else really should. Like you could see it with Valentino more than any other rider, especially back then, where you just knew that there was just a level of of nous and tactics of intelligence that we had not seen on a bike rider before previously. Like I, I grew up like knowing like knowing the Rossi game of let the other guy lead the race. He would play possum. Two laps to go, he makes his move, sets the bottom snap on the race and wins. The amount of times that happened with Valentino was insane. It, like, like He was so good at knowing how to win races. And that in itself is a genius factor that, you know, in bike racing sounds simple, 
But how many times have we seen guys overcooking or go over the top or, or crash themselves out by trying too hard? Like, Valentino almost never did that. You don't ex- like when Rossi falls in a Grand Prix, it's still a massive surprise because he, he just doesn't do it on a normal basis. He will have bad days at the office. But straight up mistakes from Valentino are very rare indeed. You may only get one or two for an entire season. And, you know, maybe that's slipped on his game a little bit from the. Um, flag to flag era we've now we've had a few errors where that's concerned but on the whole like his his intelligence his discipline on the bike his intelligence he, like him knowing when to make his move and when to make it stick and like that part of his game has been the greatest I think I've ever seen in, in, in MotoGP and, and in terms of his, his pace there's probably one race where we did see um, Valentino Rossi display a level of pace that could match anything that Stoner, Lorenzo, Marquez have ever produced. And again, it comes down to his tactical now. So the, the famous victory at Phillip Island back in 2003 um, in MotoGP, um, to many, the greatest Valentino Rossi victory of them all um, in Phillip Island, where Valentino Rossi was handed midway through the race a 10-second uh, time penalty for overtaking the yellow flags. Um, he overtook after Troy Bellis had an accident. Um, Valentino Rossi was given a pit board, which essentially told him that he was running in second or third position, which obviously was a surprise to Valentino because he was leading the race on track. Valentino Rossi right. had that tactical awareness, that brain, that mental sort of um, capacity to work out what was going on, and he won the race by 15 seconds. <laughs> Like, again, you just talked about how he was never the fastest dude, but yeah, I can win a Grand Prix in my, like, with, a, like, with my 15 seconds. What was that, the famous quote where he said, that was the one race where he rode at 100%? Yeah, like, the quote was, I believe, that, that, was, the first, that was the only race where I was at 100% right from the start. Um, like, that was, that was literally Valentino at the limit for the entire Grand Prix. Because uh, he knew anything less and he wasn't going to win. It's as simple as that. So he knew what he had to do. He worked out what had happened. He, 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 I think he needed known he had a 10-second time penalty um, to make up. And he still found a way to win. And he still just completely destroyed, you know, a, a pretty good MotoGP field at the time. And, you know, if anything, it just showed what the doctor could do and how he, he was just so much better than everybody else in the field at the time. It was insane. Those those championships in the early 2000s, he absolutely dominated. It never looked like he wasn't going to win the title until 2006, which just kind of says it all. I'm sure we'll tackle some of those stories and some of those rivalries later on in the show. But um, like that Philip Island race in, in 03, was, it was mesmerizing to watch just how... And on Philip Island, the track where... It, like. There's not a lot of gains you can make on that track. It's 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 very straightforward. It's a it's it's a, it's a track that is generally just spike races, and he won that race by 15 seconds. It was utterly ridiculous. Yeah, incredible. And he, yeah, you look at the guys he was up against in that race, and they're they're no scrubs. The guys he's beat, Loris Caparossi was second in that race on the Ducati. Um, if the official the official results, he was 5.2 seconds behind Rossi, but of course 15 seconds behind on the road because Rossi had already gone way far enough up the road to completely cancel out the penalty um, that he'd been given. <laughs> Nicky Hayden, um, who was at that point I think a MotoGP rookie still, um, was third um, on the Honda. Seti Gibernau was then fourth in that Grand Prix. Um, that race also included the likes of Carlos Checa, John Hopkins, 
Um, Colin Edwards was early in his MotoGP career, of course, because he was the reigning World Superbike champion at that point. Biaggi was in that race. Melandri was in that race. Bayliss, of course, was the crasher that brought out the yellow flags that famously Rossi overtook under. Um, so it's a high-class field. And it's another thing that Valentino Rossi has been so good at in recent years in that you almost look at that level of opposition he was up against those in those days and say that, oh, you know, that those weren't necessarily the greatest riders he was up against when you compare them to Marquez and Lorenzo and, and the such like. But Rossi, I think, made them look average uh, around that time just because he was in such an incredible yeah. um, run of form around that time. Um, in terms of some of the races that stand out to us most where Rossi's tactics um, and his, his now shone through, um, Jerez 2005 um, is, is one of the key ones. The first race of that season um, where the, it was probably the, the, the moment where the rossi Gibbonau rivalry was finally settled. Um, and we'll talk about that rivalry in a bit more depth later on. Um, but, um, I think that was I think that was the one race, Dre, that told us that in terms of the tactics, Valentino Rossi was prepared to do anything. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where you sometimes you don't really know a guy as much as you think you do, and then you see something that changes your mind and. I've made it clear on on motorsport one that you know I, I lean towards the number five in in in, in Formula One terms and mm. like I remember multi twenty one and how transcendent that was for Formula One it was like oh my god a guy ignored a team order which was you know kind of a first time that had really happened in F one where you know he was told a team order you know let Mark Webber win the race and Sebastian chased him down pulled off a spectacular overtake to beat Weber on the day. And we all know the tension that caused. It was the final straw in the Vettel-Weber relationship. And, you know, Vettel for a good few rounds was labelled as a supervillain. You know, I remember he was booed all the way until Singapore that season. It took like 10 rounds before people were like, okay, this is getting ridiculous sure now. It's still booing. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's still not completely gone away for Seb. And this was like four years later, and he's now driving for the most popular team in Formula One. And he still gets booed at certain venues because of that. You know, you know, F1 fans hold grudges. But it's 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 a similar deal here. Like Valentino was prepared to push the rules and push himself to, to the limit in order to win. He would he would do anything he could. You know, to, to win a Grand Prix, we all saw what happened in Haref with with Sete Gibbonau and and again and whatnot. We saw the Viet had a proper punch up with Max Biaggi in the back after a Grand Prix. Yeah, before like, on the podium. Yeah, like before he was on the podium, we've seen middle fingers dished out during, you know, during Grand Prix weekends. The guy is a different human being when the helmet goes down. Yeah, he has this Joker like carnival sort of personality in the paddock, but. When the visor goes down, this is a guy who will do almost anything to win a Grand Prix. And when you've got that sort of collective following behind you, no wonder he feels invincible. Because They will back you. Like, Whatever you do, they'll support you. Exactly. Like You know you're basically untouchable at that point. So, like... Why not have that mentality? Because you know you're not gonna you're gonna be on the brighter side of any social media feud you'll get, especially in this era, and especially in, in the cause of public opinion. You've basically paid off the jury already. So you know what chance have you got there, really? Yeah, and he kind of displayed that as well in one of the other great MotoGP battles on track that we saw with Casey Stoner at Laguna Seca um, back in 2008, a, a race that. I think was the, the key race in that year's championship because the two of them, it's easy to forget, the two were very close in the World Championship at that point. 
um, heading into Laguna midway through that 2008 season. Of course, Rossi would then go on just to dominate from that point onwards as Stoner um, fell away in many respects in that championship. But that was another instance, wasn't it? In terms of their battle on track and some of the overtakes that we saw, Rossi, again, was prepared to go as far as, far as he had to and cl as close as he had to to the limit uh, in terms of legality and regulations to beat Stoner. And he was essentially asking the question of Stoner, are you prepared to go as far as I am? And we found out quite soon that Casey was not willing to go that far. And I still remember Laguna Seca. That was one of the best motors. Like the first half of that race is a punch-up where a, a bike race eventually broke out. But um, like I, I still remember like Casey Stoner was very active in complaining in the press conference after the race, saying that, you know, some of those moves were too much. He essentially drilled well, him going into the corkscrew. Yeah, I remember that slightly cut the inside of the corkscrew got like two wheels on the gravel and basically pushed stoner yeah. out when he put his bike when he pushed his bike back on the track and that could have been a spectacular accident but they both got away with it on that one and yeah you're quite right we, we saw in the end that basically there was no limit as to what you know Van Valentino Rossi could do and and when, you, when you've got that level of ability and when you've got that level of confidence, like that's what he's going to do. He's going to say, are, are, you, are you going to have this accident um, or not? And Casey wasn't prepared to go that far. And, you know, that's the genius of Valentino again. He was willing to, to bend rules where other people just wouldn't. And, yeah, it, it worked out beautifully for him. And the ability to have one... Uh, ace up your sleeve, one final ace up your sleeve that no one else is expecting um, is a great tactic to have up your sleeve as well um, and nothing epitomizes that more than uh, the race one year later in Barcelona Andre, I think even now um, I think we could probably unanimously agree the most talked about overtake in MotoGP history on Jorge Lorenzo at the final corner to win it I still pray for Charlie Cox's vocal cords <laughs> after that one. It was it was epic. Um, it was for me the greatest overtake I think in MotoGP to history. This day, I have not um, seen anyone else even attempt an overtake there. Um, I I've, I've got to be that guy, Efren Vasquez in Moto Three, but not in MotoGP right, so terms anyway. Right now, but but yeah, exactly. But my God, just um, that nobody saw that one coming. Like. It, it was generally regarded that you just you don't part like the hairpin going through towards turn ten was your last chance. Like, like sector four on that track is so slow that you don't expect to be able to pass it. Was you can't now break no, anybody really. It's in fast no. right hand is you're essentially flat out through them both. There's no breaking zone. No, so like you can't you can't do it there, but. Like, Lorenzo had left the door half open, and Valentino Rossi just dived it down, pushed Lorenzo out just wide enough to get away with it. And next thing you know, like he's won the Grand Prix, and I looked at that with my jaw hit the ground. It was ridiculous. Um, the, it's like the greatest overtake I've ever seen in MotoGP, like, without, without a shadow of a doubt. And, and that was a race that, again, came at a very key point in their rivalry, as Jorge Lorenzo was... Um, for the first time, really, having shown pace in his debut season in 2008, but eventually fell away as he crashed his brains out midway through that season. In 2009, Lorenzo was really emerging as a genuine threat to Valentino Rossi within that mm -hmm. team. Um, and that was almost a key moment in that championship where Rossi kind of put Lorenzo back in his box a bit uh, for the rest of the 2009 season. Lorenzo, who was, of course, at his home Grand Prix, the Catalan Grand Prix, was riding in a Barcelona-themed crash helmet. 
Um, oh yeah, uh, the Barcelona uh, football colours on his crash helmet with the with the crest on there as well, and Rossi Rossi oh, yeah. just mugged him at the final corner to win um, his home Grand Prix. Um, one thing that Valentino Rossi possesses as well in spades is is a level of determination and drive um, that I don't think I've seen with any other rider and precious few other sportsmen. I mean, it, it's the kind of thing that I'd liken to the likes of, and again, perfect timing. Um, Roger Federer, who just today has won uh, the Rotterdam uh, 500 tournament and become the oldest ever men's world number one in tennis history, um, which is uh, which is a kind of a, a level of um, achievement I think Valentino Rossi still aspires to. Um, but not just to be as dedicated and as passionate and as hardworking as he is now um, at the age of 39 is incredible. But over the years, Valentino Rossi, for someone who's not known as a crasher, He's had to recover from some horrendous injuries. Yeah, the two big ones being in 2010, obviously, where he had that massive crash at Magello, which effectively ended his season before it had even really gotten started as Lorenzo would go on to completely dominate um, that 2010 season. They're still the all-time GP points record for a single season, that one. Um but obviously, we, we, I mean, it's, it's always not to talk about last season, where we, we saw him break his leg on his training ranch, got back on the bike, and within three weeks, had, you know, take, had, had taken part in the in, in the race at Aragon and finished in the top yeah, five. Yeah, do that. Yeah, like most bike riders are done at thirty-eight, let alone coming back from a broken leg in three weeks to still be competitive at, at, at a Grand Prix. Um, and not a particularly strong Rossi circuit either, Aragon, to begin with, but he was still competitive for the vast majority of that race. Um, just unbelievable stuff from Valentino. As you say, like just just proof of just sheer determination than anything else. Like Again, like this is a 38-year-old man who has not won a world title since 2009, and he's still giving it 120% to try and win these Grand Prix. He, he's, he's very special um, as, a, as, as a human being to have that level of determination to think, you know what, I'm going to go out of my way here to try and win this Grand Prix no matter what. It is ridiculous. And I, I, I almost applaud how crazy he is for that alone. Where do you reckon that comes from, that, that determination? I mean, I, I, I suppose it probably comes from two things, doesn't it? One, his just pure love of the sport. Um, and he just loves doing what he's doing. I think that's the reason Michael Schumacher went on for so long and the reason he eventually came back to Formula 1 in 2010, that he just loved doing it so much that he, frankly, even at that age, he still missed it um, when he didn't have it and he wanted to come back and race again. Um, and I think Valentino Rossi is very similar in that he just almost can't imagine his life away um, from MotoGP, that he just can't let go of it. Um, but also, it comes from this, I think, just this, this incredible inner self-belief that he could still go to the top of that mountain one more time and win another title. Um, and even if even if none of us necessarily think he could do it anymore, I think he still does. He still has that inner belief because if he didn't, he wouldn't race any longer um, in MotoGP, um, which is 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 so is so to be admired. And it's it's incredible as well, Dre, when you look at some of the times, certainly in the last five or six years, where we've looked at Valentino Rossi and almost considered him a spent force in MotoGP. At the end of his at the end right. of his Ducati spell, uh, when he. Well, I would say he flopped. He, uh, he, along with the team, flopped in just not turning the team into winners. Well, I think almost Ducati thought that by putting Rossi on their bike, they would fix everything. Um, and, and it just did not work. Um, and Rossi only had a, three podiums across two seasons um, in 2011 and 2012. Returned to Yamaha in 2013, essentially as Jorge Lorenzo's number two. Let's face it, that's essentially what he was. 
um, in 2013. Yes. Um, and Rossi kind of knew that he was going back to that team, and that took a bit of a bit of um, losing face because he essentially had to return to that team with his tail between his legs in 2013 after right. splitting from them two years prior to take on that new challenge at Ducati. Um, yet through that determination, that drive, that passion to still do what he does, Rossi within two years went from clear number two within his team to number one in his team and number two in the world to almost world champion. And he did that all right. on his own. It's 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 crazy. I still remember to this day that they, you know, in 2010, Yamaha had given up yeah. on him. They had said, listen, either we're cutting your salary and you'll be in Lorenzo's number two or you might as well get out of here. That was That's what Lynn Jarvis effectively said to him at the end of 2010 because they reckoned Lorenzo was the complete article by then, which he kind of was, to be fair. Mm. Um, but as you say, he, he, he crawled back to Yamaha after two years of a Ducati project that never really got off the ground to begin with and you know came back in 2013 and showed he is still capable of being world championship quality and let's not forget 14 15 and 16 he was a runner-up in the championship three years running at the age of 35 36 and 37 respectively um again that's just unheard of in moto gp that's a that a guy is just as fast as he was 15 years ago. Like some of these shock pole positions he had, like at Aston or, or like at Valencia, that out of nowhere you would never feel like, given that Rossi is like is still qualifying on pole position on, on, on semi often occasions, where he was never the fastest guy. And then a sport now where you have the two greatest qualifiers ever in said sport now in Marquez and Lorenzo. Like, he still finds ways of blowing people's minds, even at his age, and even at, even after all this time and after all the spectacular moments he's had in his career, he still finds new ways to, to captivate us all. And, that, and as you said, like, just when you start writing him off, because, I mean, I, I'm not even going to lie to you, the 2013, I thought Rossi was finished. I really did. I felt like him dropping Jeremy Burgess was basically the last roll of the dice for Valentino at that point. It was the it was the all or nothing play where it was like, hey, if this doesn't work out, well, sod it. Like you might you might as well call it a day after that one. But of yeah, course, I it think, became, I think many of us, if we if we take ourselves back to that moment where where <laughs> Rossi essentially binned his longtime crew chief and essentially his right hand man of fifteen years, Jerry Burgess, I think we all saw that at that time as the last act of a desperate man. It was. I thought it was desperate. I said, "Why would you drop Jeremy Burgess, who's been your right hand man for over like over a decade?" It just it didn't make any sense to me, and I thought that I thought that was the last roll of the dice. I thought, okay, this is going to be Rossi's last season. If this doesn't work, he's probably just going to retire, basically. And he ended up being runner up in the championship, and you know, be, only only losing out to a completely dominant Mark Marquez that season that would go on to win 13 Grand Prix that season. But Rossi was the best of the rest. He was the only guy who was in Marquez's postcode for a lot of that season. Um, and yeah, it worked out better after he dropped Jeremy Burgess, which again was a massive shock. Again, we've seen this before with We've seen this before with, with Valentino. He just has a knack for this sort of thing. He has a knack for, and again, it's something that very few people do this late into their career, is that they still find new ways of getting better. Um, you know, you'd think, as you mentioned, you'd think that by that stage, by mid-30s, you're finished, or you're certainly past your peak. Um, you know, Valentino continues to fight that, and by finding new ways to get better, to completely reinvent his own riding style um, around four or five years ago, to try and essentially ride more like Mar Marquez. Um, by hanging himself off the side of the bike is incredible. 
to, you know, he was one of the first people to employ an ex-rider, Luca Canalora, as his new rider coach a couple of years ago. I mean, he was right. one of the first people to do that, and that's now something that almost all of the top riders have. Yeah, they've all got rider coaches now. And it was it, like he said it himself. He was the guy that was learning from Mar- Marquez because Marquez was a game changer in MotoGP. And then Rossi you know, spent you know months studying Marquez's tape, studying what was going on, seeing the changes to his rides on, then adapting his own style to be more competitive. And it worked. He very nearly won that 2016 title two years ago as a result. Of, of, his, of his actions and his study. And like, just, again, as, as said before, we all know, you know, just how determined he is to still win that 10th championship. Mm. But um, Jesus. Oh. Yeah, he, it's one of those things that's crazy. Yeah, he, he's, he just doesn't stop uh, in new ways. And yeah, Team Rossi has become, uh, it's, it's the way I phrased it. And it's, you look at Valentino Rossi and many of his successes and they come together with, his crew chiefs at the time, with it be it Jerry Burgess or Savannah Galvacera, uh, Lynn Jarvis, his longtime uh, manager at Yamaha, um, his regular crew chief, some of who are active on Twitter, the likes of Alex Briggs, um, Brent Webb as well, who's been a, a key right-hand man for him over over the time uh, of his career. Um, and they have become a real team, haven't they, Dre? I mean, how many times have we seen in Valentino Rossi's career a, a Rossi who's essentially struggled through a weekend and then come Sunday, they throw some magic bullet setup at it and transform themselves into race winners. He's a Sunday man, Valentino. It's what he's good at, um, says Keefe in every weekend. Um, but um, yeah, you're absolutely right, to be fair. like It's, it's, it's one of those things, he's, again, his qualifying record was taken from Lorenzo and Marquez, respectively, a couple of years ago now. But... You, like Kewin is right. He he always was a Sunday man. And again, as you say, the amount of times he'd be in the midfield or in, in like just outside the top four or five, going into a, a race, or you know, he's starting a race on row two or even row three, and he'd come back and be so much stronger on the Sunday, and he'd find an extra couple of temps on on race day that would put him back into contention for a win or back in contention for a high finish on the podium. That is a champion's mentality that, you know, with you coming through on your bad days is often such an incredible trait that, you know, you often need to win titles. And that's something that Rossi was just so, so good at. He was a Sunday man and he, he did it to devastating effect on occasions. Yeah, I mean, that 2015 season, he made a habit of winning from the third row of the grid. Um, late, mm-hmm. in ra- late in races, he just you discovered that race setup that enabled him to come through. Um, and win Grand Prix that we just didn't think he he was in a position to win at all. Um, it's an incredible record that he has. Um, and as you mentioned, he's not necessarily a pole hound over the course of his career, um, but he's he's enabled himself to to basically make the most of that and, and come through um, in races. Uh, looking at his career, um, and we've talked about the mental side of it already, and Valentino Rossi has almost made a name for himself as the master of the mind games, for better or for worse. And um, you can argue in more recent times, for worse. Um, but if you look back at the early days, I already mentioned the fact that he, he pretty much destroyed Seti Jiménez mentally. Um, and, and that was a rivalry where Seti Jiménez, in that era, in the um, 990 era of MotoGP, Seti Jiménez was pretty much the only rider that could even be considered Valentino Rossi's equal. Um, back at that time. Um, he was the only guy that could consistently challenge Rossi for victories. Um, yeah, it was the mental mind games that, that Rossi started around that time of that famous track-cleaning incident in Qatar, um, a race that Gibbonau went on to win when Rossi was sent to the back of the grid um, following a complaint by Gibbonau's uh, 
Grassini team that got Rossi sent to the back of the grid. Valentino Rossi would later proclaim in a press conference after the race that Sete Juvenal would not win another Grand Prix in his career. And incredibly, Dre, he was right. <laughs> He's such a mean He's... man. Um, yeah, um, gosh, there's like that was that was the I know better than you do moment right there. And um, yeah, when Valentino Rossi was that was that devastating. You know, there was nothing he could do on that once. And again, as you say, it's, it's it was a matter of mind games a lot of the time from him. And yeah, he was unbelievable at that point. I mean, you could see it was a confidence-breaking moment. Like, I, I can openly tell you as a Sete fan, he was never the same after that race in RF. No. I can tell you that for free. And then, then the injuries wrapped up, and then it was effectively all over for Sete, unfortunately. But you can tell, you can pinpoint it right there and then that, that you know Sete was never the same guy after that. He was never the perennial number two guy. Marco Melandri came through, and then the new era of really top-class riders like Nicky Hayden, Danny Pedrosa. Um, you know, Loris was still around at that point. Loris was still top tier. Even younger talent like Makoto Tamada was starting to come through at that point in time. But Sete was never the same after that one. And it can it all goes back to that moment where Valentino Rossi, you know, barged Sete off the track, won a Grand Prix, pissed Sete off, faced no punishment for it, and then said, oh, he's not winning again. And it broke him. You know, like, Sete, Sete bought the mind games too much. And now they're good friends again. Yeah. Funny how that's Yeah, now. Sete Chibinau is now one of the said rider coaches that Valentino Rossi has almost brought into vogue. Uh, Sete is Danny Pedrosa's rider coach um, in, in MotoGP yeah. and nowadays. Um, and by all accounts, from what we've seen in testing in recent weeks, it's working pretty well for him, um, as we'll yeah, talk yeah. about in a, in a future episode of this show. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, the, the mind games continue right throughout his career. Probably ugly the one rider. Um, prior to um, the current world champion um, that necessarily didn't fall for the mind games or wasn't subjected to the mind games was the first rider really to beat Rossi um, in his career, Nicky Hayden, who seemed to there seemed to be a real mutual respect there and admiration between the two um, that was really epitomized by the, the way that Valentino Rossi congratulated um, Nicky Hayden on his world title as they uh, circulated round for the Valencia circuit back to Park Ferme after that final round of 2006. Um, I mean, you couldn't imagine Rossi doing that to, to Marquez or Lorenzo after they won a title, could you? Um, nowadays. No. Um, and, and Lorenzo, um, more recently, was another rider who was subjected to the mind games. Who can forget the infamous wall down the middle of the Yamaha pit? Um, when, oh, when that Lord. was essentially the wall that Valentino Rossi decided this guy's a threat now and Yamaha essentially had to make a decision you're either in the Rossi camp or the Lorenzo camp yeah that's how that's how it came down to it and you know like it's 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 kind of funny like again like if we ever do a Lorenzo special which we'll bound to at some point um, I mean us um, the, the rise of Lorenzo as a rider was, you know, a growing you know, dissent, a dissenting factor between them were two very different peas in a pod. You know, Valentino Rossi, the showman, the entertainer, the, you know, the, the look at me sort of rider, you know, the, the ego booster, that sort of guy. Where on the other side of the coin, you had Lorenzo who kept himself to himself, was very quiet, was very disciplined. You know, you know, he was outspoken when threatened or felt like there was something he didn't like. But you know, people thought he had an attitude yeah, problem. He but was he was also well quiet. aware of how good he was. Yes, and ex exactly, and, and both were very well aware about how fast the other one was by that point in time. Like they both knew quite quickly that you know this isn't going to last. 
basically. Yeah. And yeah, but most of us. And yeah, it, it was. It led to one of the most un, unheard of things. I mean, it's unheard of now, but who would have ever thought one day we would have a factory MotoGP team with its two riders on different tire manufacturers? Valentino Rossi, around yeah. 2008, after Casey Stoner and Ducati had dominated the 2007 season on Bridgestone tires, Yamaha were running Michelins. Jorge Lorenzo came into that team as the rookie on Michelin tires, yet his teammate Valentino Rossi had switched to Bridgestones. You may never see that again in motorsport ever. Like two, like two teammates on two different tire manufacturers on two fundamentally differently designed bikes. Uh, an EMR team that had a wall divide because the other guy didn't want to know anything about what their other rider was doing. It's, it's like you look back on it now. It's fucking insane yeah. that that was even a thing. But you know, it's it, it's that's uh, that's how bad it got between them towards you know the you know not only like the early you know the late two thousands in their first run together, but their second run together as well. You know, between twenty thirteen and, and and sixteen when they were together as well, it was. Like it wasn't so bad second time round, but it, it, but we still had moments like at Masano when Rossi blocked past Lorenzo on lap two of the race, and Lorenzo, you know, when he was calling out a wisey block pass, and Rossi laughed in his freaking face. Like it, it, like it's it's like those two guys are never going to be able to coexist again. It, it, it's obvious they're just two fundamentally different riders with fundamentally different personalities and boy did he get explosive between the two of them as time went on it did and uh, more recently um the, the mind games would find another uh, target and valentino rossi i think in, in many ways it's a football analogy where in some managers cases the likes of sir alex ferguson as you'll know very well dre um and jose Mourinho more recently almost are of the attitude of the foot the match the sack the game or the weekend starts in the press conference beforehand um, you know, right. that presents you with an opportunity to create a mental edge either on your opponent or perhaps on the officials in some cases um, in that <laughs> weekend. Valentino Rossi was also of that attitude of, you know, the Grand Prix starts in the press conference beforehand and um, he turned his attentions in late 2015 to Mark Marquez, um, particular at Sepang in the infamous press conference on the Thursday of that race weekend where Rossi took on Marquez for what he perceived was some favouritism on Marquez's part towards Jorge Lorenzo in the race for that world title. And um, this was probably the first case where Valentino Rossi, who'd, whose mind games had served him pretty well prior to then, so in that case you can kind of understand why he turned to it again because it had a pretty good track record of succeeding. Um, right. He, he turned to the mind games again, but this time he turned them to a guy who wasn't going to bite. Exactly. Like by by the time we got to 2015, you know, Lorenzo had already developed such a zen-like mastery of mind games that he was not he wasn't going to budge on anything Rossi had said because he he knew that game already. Marquez Marquez knew his conscience was clear right from the start. He knew he'd done nothing wrong, and I think that's what was able to, for him to basically just shrug off Rossi's mind games so well because hey. Like in in Philip Island, it was proven. Like Marquez did nothing wrong. He didn't break any rules, and he didn't break some kind of ethical code that only existed in Valentino Rossi's head. Um, like like that, and we all saw it in Sepanga race. You know, the first half of that race, like Marquez was doing the exact sort of overly aggressive pass we saw from Valentino in the past. Um, and you know, we saw the guy that was getting flustered about it was Valentino. It wasn't Marquez. Marquez was just riding the race he normally rides, and Rossi was the one throwing his hand up, saying, well, what are you doing? We're like, what are we yeah, doing here, if, basically? Even if Mark Marquez was being uh, unnecessarily or overly aggressive, you can argue that that was a fire that was lit by Valentino Rossi himself. You know, he, he, cre he created exactly. 
um, a motivation in Mark Marquez that might not have been there beforehand. Um, he almost lit a fire under Mark Marquez that Marquez wanted to go and shut Valentino up. Um, and of course, we all know uh, how that panned out. And we're going to come on to some of the individual rivalries and the, the key flashpoints within those um, in a moment. But as much as this is a show where we're wanting to sing the praises of Valentino Rossi, we cannot talk about the career of Valentino Rossi without talking about Sepang 2015 and the, the infamous collision um, with Mar- Marquez. And I mean, if you're a Valentino Rossi fan, nothing he will ever do will taint or cloud your judgment of him and your opinion of him. He will always be a hero in your, in your eyes. No. Um, because you know, he's created that with us or against us mentality. And uh, it's almost a cult in some ways. The fans that, that cheer him on will support him no matter what and justify whatever he does um but in the eyes of the neutral dre uh, and i would probably go as far as to say that you're among the neutral uh, when it comes to valentino rossi um will the events of sepang 2015 forever taint his legacy and his career as a MotoGP rider short answer no um <laughs> long answer well I wouldn't say it would damage his legacy, but what I will say is I think he's created a rift in MotoGP fandom that I don't think will ever recover until he's retired. Like it, it the way that Rossi went about that incident, no matter which way you slice, no matter what side of the defense you won, that's exactly the point. It's now a fence. MotoGP supported like tribal. Yeah, it's now tribal. It's now gotten to the point where now. You're either on Marquez's side or you're on Rossi's side. You can't really be both now at this point. Like, the key riders have their own grandstands now. Yeah, exactly. Like, like it's now that every like Lorenzo, Marquez, and Rossi, and to a lesser degree Pedrosa as well, they've now got signature grandstands now at every Grand Prix we go to, especially in Spain. It's like Spain even more so now, where it's it's, it's extremely territorial, and I think. This really started after Sepang 2015, where that after that Grand Prix, the entire podium got booed, mm. uh, including Pedrosa, who had done nothing wrong and, and had won in brilliant fashion. But yeah, you know, mean, ev- poor every- Pedrosa always wins the race that nobody cares yeah, every, about. Now. Every rider was essentially asked about that incident afterwards. It was almost as if they were being asked to choose a side, um, whether they were Team Rossi or Team Marquez. And it, it culminated in that championship finale in 2015, where... Every rider was being asked before that race because they knew Valentino Rossi was going to have to come from the back of the grid. Every rider was being asked if they were going to help or hinder Rossi or not. It, like that's a, that that was a thing. That was a legitimate thing. Where it's like you're going to get out of the way for Valentino. Like in any other sporting context, this would be completely ridiculous. But no, in the world of Valentino Rossi, he is such a godlike figure in bike racing now that people actually got out of the way for him in the middle of that race. Like, like I will never forgive Danilo Petrucci for that one, where he basically he saw Rossi and was like, oh shit, let me get out of the he way off the road. Rossi's coming through. Yeah, because I know Danilo had opened, he said that Valentino was his hero, and, you know, he was never going to stand in the way of him winning a championship. But I'm like, dude, you were jeopardising your own team and your own sponsors to get out of the way for a fellow for a fellow competitor again in any other environment that would be completely ridiculous but in this one it seems almost normal that you know guys would get out of the way because it was valentino like he had some sort of divine right to have a title i just oh i it's but those three rounds, Philip Island, Sepang, and Valencia 2015, I will never forget because it was like a month of just sheer 
baffling MotoGP toxicity and it all spilled out on and off the track. It was completely ridiculous. And I, I, again, I don't know how quite how we got to that point, but it's something I will never forget. And it all stemmed from the sport revolving around Valentino. If it was a Marquez Lorenzo kick, it wouldn't have generated anywhere near the amount of attention that it got. But because it was Valentino who was at the front and center and he was the catalyst in this entire feud um, in the first place, that is what I think made MotoGP's fan base so so tribal in terms of having a side or picking a favorite rider or picking who you felt was, you know, the guy in favor in that feud. Again, I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again. It was it was completely crazy and yeah, just 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 ridiculous. Well, I, I, really. I agree with you in terms of you know his his legacy as a rider. Because I, I think back to and again a rider a, a person I've, I've compared him to once already on this show and comparing him to him again to Michael Schumacher, um, who was in his pomp around the same time that Rossi was in his. Um, in, in the mid to, uh, mid to early 2000s. And Michael Schumacher was part of two of the most um, sort of dramatic scandals, if you like, of you know, driver conduct in the last 20, 30 years in Formula 1, since Senna and Prost of the early 90s. And I'm, think, and I'm thinking, you, know, you can argue three, actually, because you could argue Adelaide 94 um, and essentially shopping Damon Hill out of a world championship in Australia. Hareth 97, where he tried to do the same to Jacques Villeneuve, only he failed this time. And Monaco 2006, where he parked his car in qualifying to try and put himself on pole position. That was that led to right. vitriol um, against him um, after, after that English qualifying moment. session, um, where you know he was many people despised what he did that day and for good reason. I mean, I thought there was a level of um, of evil genius to it. I've got to be honest. Um, it's, the kind, it's the kind of thing Absolutely. I've tried on video games several times, um, but but no, it was, but it was one of those where you kind of you you heard the buzzwords thrown around at that time of oh well he'll never recover from this you know his reputation will never recover from this but and I know Michael Schumacher's personal circumstances have changed dramatically since then um, that, that have changed the way we view him I suppose um, but I think once a, a career's finished think to 2012 when he was retiring for the second time no one was thinking about Hareth 97 or Adelaide 94. Everyone was thinking about the seven world titles and the 91 Grand Prix he'd won. Um, because Absolutely. I think by the end of your, at the end of someone's career, you see them for essentially what they are and for what they've done for the sport and all the good they've done. Um, and I think Valentino Rossi will be viewed in the same light at the end of his career. But one question I've always wanted to ask, and um, I don't know if you've got an answer to this, I'm not sure I've got one myself, but I was, I'm curious as to, to what you think about this. How different do you think MotoGP would look now if Valentino Rossi had won that 2015 title? I mean, for instance, do you still think he'd be racing? Ooh, that is a... Okay, we've been doing this show for, what, nearly five years now, and that might be the most loaded question you've ever <laughs> asked me. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> okay, let me, let me give this a think. Right. This is That's a good question. I, the way I've seen the promotion of Valentino, the way I know Valentino's brand, and like if I know Valley like I think I do as an outside viewer, I think if he had won title number 10 with or without the Marquez quote-unquote intervention or however you want to call it, um, if, if, if whatever you want to call it, like... I don't think he'd still be riding because I think his entire mentality since he's come back has been to win title number yeah, 10 since he's gone back. To the yeah, like I think 
like the way he had like like brand promotions for the ninth title when he won that in 2012 and he, he came out of the portal who had the egg with the number nine on it you know the chicken celebrations and whatnot the the you know, the, 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 the the business meeting he had on track at Mategi when he won title number nine the way rossi knows a good promotion and the way he is i i know in his head I think a lot of the determination that he has as a rider, I think, revolves around winning 10 titles. In the 10 titles that he may have already had if he'd actually won that race in Estoril in 2006, which he would have he would have won this, the title on countback if that had come through. But it's one of those things where I think his desperation for number 10, the nice round number, the double digits number of titles, this, the milestone that that is, I think has been a key motivator for Rossi being what he is now. The fact he's gotten rid of Burgess, the fact that he's still riding now and he's probably, you know, if he signs an extension, he'll be, he'll be riding in the top class beyond the age of 40, which is unprecedented in modern day MotoGP. The fact that he was willing to, you know, you know, lose Lorenzo, the fact that he's now competing against Maverick Vinales, you know, the fact that he was willing to throw a friendship with Marquez are completely under the bus you know, to claim like he was the innocent bystander and all of that. Like, I think it all stems back to winning that 10th title or potentially winning that 10th title. Um, I don't think he, I don't think he, he's still riding if he has the 10th title. Because like, what more could Valentino really go after if it wasn't for title number 10? Like, he's probably not going to get to Agostini's 15, whatever happens now, especially given how stacked MotoGP is as a top flight promotion. Um, like the way it is now, I think the last two records he really wants is the tenth world title and maybe Agostini's win record on top of that, which I think he's about seven or eight away from um, as it stands at the time of recording. But for me, I think this all revolves around Rossi trying to get title number ten, and I think that you know everything that has stemmed down in the last three years four years or so has, has revolved from that yeah Valentino Rossi currently sits on 115 career wins um, Agostini is on 122 um, so if he has a couple of more successful years uh, with a competitive Yamaha he might match it he might match or surpass it but he's gonna have to probably win four races per year for the next couple of years um, to do it because I can't see Rossi having another season where he wins seven plus in a year I just don't think he's at that level anymore. I don't think MotoGP lends itself to that level of dominance anymore. I mean, even Marquez and Davizioso last year only won six each. Um, so I think it's just so right. hard to, to do that nowadays. I think MotoGP is in a space now where it's just impossible to, to dominate to that extent. Um, but yeah, that's, that's probably my one great regret from 2015 is that we could have necessarily... And it didn't necessarily make, mean that Rossi had to win the title that year. Um, but let's say Rossi had or that Lorenzo had won it um, fair and square, without any vitriol, without any animosity, we could have still had a sport which is... I mean, the sport's fantastic now as it is, but we could have had a sport where you know, Valentino Rossi is universally adored still. Jorge Lorenzo is l not adored, but universally respected rather than looked at as the villain of the piece. Um, because I think many people were very, very quick, and correct, but quick to throw the... Uh, throw mud and throw Lorenzo under the bus in Valencia last year because of what he'd done in the past and because he had had a reputation as a bit of a um, a bit of a divisive figure that as soon as issues began to surface between him and Davizioso everyone was quick to pinpoint Lorenzo as the bad boy in the piece 
Um, and people look at him in that light now. Mark Marquez will never, I don't think, get the ad the adulation and the the adoring support that he deserves for what he's done for this sport. Will continue to do this for this sport because of the way he was positioned in the Valentino Rossi feud of 2015, um, and the way he was mm -hmm. perceived to have cost Rossi the title. And um, for me, that was so unnecessary, and and that's a, a great regret that we could have had a sport. We could have had a sport where our three great champions and our three great um, stars, if you like, of this sport could all be viewed at in a positive light yeah it's as i say depending on which side of the fence you're on you'll always look at one of them favorably and the other two negatively um which is a real shame for me in, in terms of motor gp and, and the, the space it's going to be left in uh, once valentino rossi um retires um and we don't know yet when that's going to be i mean in terms of some of the great rivalries these had i mean if there was one dre that you could look back on and relive that all again i mean they've they've, they've all had their own different characteristics i mean Rossi and Stoner were that, that I enjoyed that for as much as they were two. There were such different riders on track, um, you know, two very very different ways of skinning a cat and, and personalities. They were complete polar opposites in terms of how they went about their sport. Um, Rossi and Lorenzo, the mental warfare between the two that became vitriolic and uh, became there was so much animosity between the two, and Rossi and Gibinau, which was. You know, in many ways, the, the first great MotoGP rivalry in the MotoGP era, where Jubinau was the first guy in that era to really hold a candle to Rossi. There was the Biaggi rivalry as well, where, um, again, Rossi would just have an edge over Biaggi mentally. I mean, if there's one of those rivalries that you'd quite happily live through again, which would it be? Ooh, tough question. Um... Rossi versus Marquez was the most popular MotoGP has ever been. And as much as it was toxic and as much as I regret how Marquez was victimized in that feud um, in the landscape of MotoGP and where it was in, in the middle of a much bigger feud, and that was Rossi versus Lorenzo, um, I, I can't deny that seeing so many people that didn't watch MotoGP before care and uh, care about that finale was special, and I'm not denying that. Like I still remember seeing the grid walk um, from Neil Hodson before that final race in 2015, and seeing a lot of guys down there that don't normally show up for MotoGP rounds. You know, like Mark Webber, like Martin Brundle, who was clearly on the wrong on the ring on the wrong sport for a grid walk at the time. Um, but he was down there. You know, you know Mark Cavendish, who's obviously a big bike nut. Paul Hollywood were all down there. You John know, Giddis like was it was a big. Well, yeah. John McGinnis, it, it felt like a, it felt like MotoGP was box office for maybe the first time ever as a motorsport series where it's not like because MotoGP doesn't have like a flagship race like other motorsport series. Like, it's not like an Indy 500 or a Daytona 500, which is happening it, it's tonight. Still, it is still a niche um, MotoGP. Even now, it is still a niche it sport, is. and it's Rossi that is the one kind of like mainstream star that this sport has. Um, for, yeah, absolutely. For, you know, again, for better or for worse, and there are riders in this sport that we could all like. You deserve to be mainstream stars in their own right, but none of them connect with the public like Rossi does. And and it, and, and you're right about that Rossi Marquez rivalry. But I would also go as far as to say, Rossi versus Marquez pre Sepang 15 was still a, a rivalry, and it was great. I, I absolutely loved that rivalry pre Sepang 15 because we had the the battle in Argentina, we had the battle in Assen, where there was clearly a bit of needle between them, but we still almost viewed Mark Marquez as the the Rossi, the young Rossi fan who was enjoying the opportunity to race against his hero. Um, and their battle, right. the very first time we saw them on track together, Qatar 2013, when they had that brilliant battle over second place, and then a battle together over the win a year later, 
the, the two got on great around that time, yet the rivalry and the battle on track was fantastic. And the rivalry, I think we were all getting ready to enjoy in the sport. And we were hoping we were going to see them battle for a championship one day. But I think you're right. You know, they, you know, no rivalry, I suppose, in MotoGP has, you know, captured the imagination of the public like that one. To the point now that when Rossi and Marquez are together on track, you almost take a deep breath, don't you? It's like, uh-oh. It's like, uh-oh. It's like, oh, no, what's going to happen here? Um, you, God, you're absolutely right. It's it's one of those things where, you know, you get nervous, you get agitated every time they're together because you think, oh, no, what's going to happen this time? Because we all know Marquez rides that line between genius and recklessness very, very quick. Like, very, very... It's a very thin line with him. And Rossi, well... You know, Rossi is Rossi. He he will do what Rossi likes to do on a track. You know, when you know, play mind games, try to intimidate the opposition. Um, like I mentioned before, we went we went on the air, but like Rossi reminds me a lot of Ronnie O'Sullivan when it comes to mind games. Like I don't think he's deliberately laying them out half the time, but I think a lot of players in snooker are scared to face him because he's Ronnie O'Sullivan purely on name value alone. It's like, oh no, Ronnie's here. I'm not going to play my best game because I'm facing Ronnie O'Sullivan. In the same way that Valentino Rossi, I think, often did that with people like Gibbonow and Biaggi in the past. But as you say. Like, those two are like the two polarizing ends of the MotoGP spectrum now where, you know, Marquez is the happy-go-lucky, enthusiastic, you know, determined champ, the genius on a bike that, you know, finds new ways to captivate us. And Valentino Rossi represents the old guard at this point, you know, the guy that will try and win via possum, via intimidation, via mind games. It's two complete opposite ends of the spectrum. And that's what's often so beautiful about it as a feud. So even before Sepang, like there was there was there was bubbling tension between those two. And I think that's partly why it exploded how it did in the end. It was it was incredible. He, as I mentioned earlier on, he he has transcended his sport in the way that very few stars do in sports. You know, it, it, we are talking Roger Federer, Tiger Woods levels of of incredible fame within his sport, Valentino Rossi. He's probably the most famous sporting athlete in Italy um, and the most mm-hmm. famous, without question, in motorcycle racing. Um, it, it, it continues to drive him and it continues to be the topic of conversation every time Valentino Rossi goes to a race, the 10th title. Um, Two-part question, because I think I already know the answer to the first part. Um, a, do you think before he retires he will win number 10 uh, and b if he ever were to win number 10 what do you think that would do for the sport i don't think number 10 will ever happen unfortunately i think moto gp i think the level it is at now is the greatest it's ever been and you know we're now walking into a into a biking climate where i think five guys can win a title on any given year now with you know marquez pedrosa Lorenzo and now Dovi as well as you know the 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 new you know alien that's in the top tier of the sport. I wouldn't rule out Johan Zarco in the very near future. The way his career's ascended in the last couple of years as well, but I don't think Rossi is on that level where he, I free where he could, I think we can win five or six races a year that will be enough to give him a, a real shot at it. Now I don't think he's that good on a consistent basis, and that Yamaha team at the moment looks like it's struggling, um, but. If by some miracle, if he did win title number 10, I think the amount of mainstream attention would be insane because 
People don't talk about bike racing really unless Valentino Rossi is involved on a mainstream level. It's a bit like the Olympics now, for example, with Lizzie Arnold winning her gold medal yesterday. We don't talk about yeah. shit like this unless it's an unless it's like unless something big I think comes Valencia, up. Valencia 2015 final. gave us an insight into what it would be like. I think it would be the it would be the biggest Completely. news story in MotoGP history. Yes, like I mean, if if Rossi was to go into the final round of a title with a realistic chance of winning said title, the amount of eyes that would be on that race in in Valencia, the final round, would be insane. If, if it was a, if if he was walking into this like Dovi was last year, even when he had an outside chance of said title, the attention and the promotion that MotoGP as a sport would give it would be off the charts. And yeah, I completely agree. It would be massive for the sport if he was a relevant title contender again, um, like he was in 2015. Um, it, it would be insane, yeah, in my opinion. And, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think he will do it, um, but I, I don't think there's necessarily a reason to suggest that he cannot go close. Um, and I think, I think, I think, I think a large, to a large extent, it depends not so much on Rossi, but on Yamaha. Um, I think if Yamaha can produce a, the kind of package that they produced in 2015, um, <laughs> He's got every chance of winning it because I don't think he and Maverick Vinales are too far apart in terms of their overall um, ability and performance over a season. It's, by the way, if you think he's going to do it, you can get 15-2 to 2 on him for this season, Valentino Rossi. He's the fifth favourite at the moment. Um, but from us, inside tip, take the 14-1 to 1 on Danny Pedrosa. He is 14-1, to 1, guys, um, for this year's world title. That is a great um, way to shout, people. Get 50 odds for the first three places as well. So, um, so jump on that if I were you before all those odds plummet, which they will. Um, yeah, and please gamble responsibly. Um, but um, but that that brings us to to the end of this this Valentino Rossi special edition of Bike Live as we look back um, on his career. Believe me, we could talk about Valentino Rossi for for, for a twenty four hour show, but we simply don't have the time on this show um, because we try to uh, impose limits on these things. Um, but we hope you enjoyed this look back on Valentino Rossi's career. As I mentioned, we did one of these before Mark Marquez. We'll no doubt do others on uh, certain other riders. Um, when uh, the time comes, uh, when we have skip weeks, which are inevitable over the course of a motorsport season. Um, but thankfully, this week isn't one of them. Um, because, I mean, we'll talk about it at much greater length, Dre, um, on episode 47, which is coming later this week. But um, let's briefly sort of whet the appetite and set the stage a bit, because our next edition of this show, episode 47, on uh, Friday night, is our 2018 World Superbike season preview. The season starts this weekend. Yeah, you're getting two episodes of Bike Live this week. How cool is that? Um, yeah, we're spoiling you people because, as said, the World Superbike 2018 season starts up this weekend at Phillip Island. And, uh, well, they couldn't have chosen a better place to start. Phillip Island is born for close close racing. Anyone that knows their bikes knows that Phillip Island is probably the best biking circuit on the planet, bar none. Um, and, and let's be honest here, it's a new set of rules um, the sport is actively going out of its way to yeah. try and hurt Kawasaki. So Jonathan Ray probably isn't going to have it go all his own way this year in, in one way or another, for better or worse. That can be your decision to decide on that one. But we will preview all of the action and all you need to know going into the 2018 season later this week by the time this goes up. Um, will you know, Will Jonathan Ray walk out of a title? Is Ducati thinking more about 2019 and 2018? Is Yamaha a dark horse threat? And just how good is Leon Camier after all? All those questions will probably be answered in some creative fashion or whatnot later this week. So stay tuned for that. And if you haven't already, 
check out the um, Phillip Island race. Both races one and two uh, will be on Eurosport as always. So check that out if you haven't already. Give it a chance. They're like the way it's going right now, it could be the most competitive World Superbike season in quite some time. So stay tuned for that and enjoy our preview. Yeah, even if it week. isn't, Phillip Island always delivers uh, for the opening round of the championship. So even it if does. the season turns out to be an absolute dud, Phillip Island very rarely is. So uh, yeah, make sure you tune in for that. And as I mentioned, uh, our World Superbike and World Super Sport uh, season preview to come uh, later this week as Lucas Mahias goes to yes. defend his world title. Can he beat Keenan Safoglu in a full season? Um, it's almost like when a WWE guy wins the championship on Money in the Bank. Can he beat a fresh opponent? It's almost like that now for uh, Lucas Mahias. Can he retain the title? Oh, can he retain God. the title against a fresh Keenan Safoglu? We shall see. Um, we'll preview all of that um, later this week. Also, though, this week, Potentially, uh, this isn't certain yet, but it's likely. Um, Motorsport 101, which is um, being uh, on, well, not a hiatus, but it's uh, still fortnightly for the time being. It's due back this week, um, but I think Dre, we're going to have to be creative on this one. No, no, I think I think I'm gonna be, I think I'm gonna take a week <laughs> off and just let RJ spout. I just let RJ wax lyrical about the Daytona 500, which is happening. Right about now, actually, as we record this, um, from the, for 7.30 on, on, on Sunday the 18th, so literally right around green flag time for the Daytona 500, the biggest race in NASCAR. And inevitably, we're going to probably spend about half an hour talking about Danica Patrick. Yay! Um, but, um, you know, all the talk from Daytona and inevitably some of the motorsport stuff, I may even dig into the mailbag for the first time this year. So, you know, stay tuned for that one. But, um yeah, I did promise we'd be back next week. Probably a shorter episode. We probably won't have to record two this time around. Thank God. Um, <laughs> and especially in Lewis's case, he yeah, gets these damn things. But episode 123 of Motorsport 101 probably will be out as well. As well. So stay tuned for that one. It's not quite confirmed yet, but it probably yeah. will be. So stick around for that worry. soon. Um, Motorsport 101 will be going weekly very, very soon as well. Because, of course, the Formula 1, the Formula yeah, 1 March. season is around a month away and pre-season testing is around a week away um so um oh yeah, lord liveries um, everyone they're pretending to um pretending that mercedes aren't going to dominate this year um but we shall see um all of that to come in in hey. the coming weeks um dre ain't drinking the kool-aid this year guys he's um steadfast on that i'm off that narcotic yeah, right until <laughs> in melbourne yeah. Um, but anyway, we shall we shall see um, the uh, yeah the next episode of Motorsport 101 in all probability uh, later this week, as well as um, our World Superbike season preview of Bike Live to come. Episode 48 next week, um, late next week, we'll um, as well as review the opening round of the World Superbike in Phillip Island. We'll also bring you the full lowdown if you're wondering. Uh, on the Thailand MotoGP test, which has come to a conclusion today as we record this. We simply could not fit it in uh, to either this show or to our World Superbike season preview. So if you're wondering, and if you want to know what happened in the Thailand test, or just want to know what we think of it, we will tell you in episode 48. Um, Honda was fast. Honda was fast need to snake know. stops play. <laughs> no, really. Um, yes. That, that's going to come um, in a couple of episodes' time. Between now and then, though, places you can find us. We're on Facebook. It's uh, .com forward slash motorsport101. You can follow us on uh, Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. Um, our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Our website is motorsport101.net. And you can earn yourself early access to uh, this show and to our um, weekly shows, Motorsport 101 and Bike Life. Patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. My thanks to Andre Harrison for joining me this week. Uh, and this Valentino Rossi special, uh, the week that he turns 39, will he mark his 40th year with title number 10? Time will tell, but we will enjoy following the season as it goes on. We'll see you for our World Superbike preview on Friday. Bye for now. <laughs>